Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited because Courageous Conversations is back. We weren't able to have it last year because of COVID, but this year it is back with a vengeance. We are so excited for the seven amazing topics we have, Christianity and white supremacy, rediscovering early African Christianity, black religions and the next generation, slavery in the Bible, politics in the pulpit, truth and trauma, patriarchy in the church. We are squeezing a lot of courageous conversations this year in Washington, D.C., September 3rd and 4th at National Community Church. Listen, you don't want to miss it. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Now, this is a hybrid conference. We have 250 in-person tickets available, and they are on the way to selling out. Um, So the next option would be the virtual pass. All of that is available at CourageousCombos.org. I'm so excited about it. We have amazing panelists. We have Dr. Christina Edmondson, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Esau McCauley, Dr. Eric Mason, Dr. Lisa Bowens, Dr. Otis Moss, Dr. Marvin McMickle, Dr. Vince Bantu, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, Dr. Cheryl Sanders. It's going to be amazing. I would not miss it, whether in person or virtually. So get your tickets today at CourageousConvos.org. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the G3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the G3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Alicia Jackson. Welcome, Dr. Jackson. Thank you. I appreciate being here, Lisa. Thank you for joining us. For those who don't know you, just tell our audience just a little about more about who you are. Okay. Well, I am, am a historian. I focus primarily on African-American history um, and um, the South. And so I'm really interested in looking and recovering stories that have been lost uh, or forgotten for various reasons. And so um, this project, um, The Recovered Life of Isaac Anderson, is a well over a decades long project to recover the story um, about a very important individual, but represents a lot of the stories that have not been told about African-Americans um, for various reasons. That's helpful. I'm excited to to get into that, to that today. You have a, a new book that kind of encompasses the work you've been working on, mm-hmm. um, The Rediscovered Life of Isaac Anderson. For our audience, who is Isaac Anderson? Well, Isaac Anderson um, was an African-American man. Um, He was from uh, Fort Valley area, which is right. It's like a little south of Macon. Uh, And um, anyway, he was owned by his father uh, and um, who was a white slave owner. And uh, anyway, he um, ended up... um, working for his father, who um, was also um, involved in the slave trade. Um, And um, 
And so the story gets into talking a little bit about him, but also Isaac Anderson. And um, he's really significant in terms of looking at his story because he also is a founder of the CME Church, uh, which was founded in 1870 as a colored Methodist church. So the story just looks at the relationship between this father and the son. Um, both of these men would serve in the Georgia legislature. Uh, the father would uh, serve um, representing the area first, um, supporting the the Democratic Party, which was very much aligned with the Ku Klux Klan. Um, he supported, his father supported um, the ousting of Henry McNeil Turner uh, and other black legislators during reconstruction. Um, and uh, eventually his father would be uh, pushed out of the Georgia legislature, removed from the Georgia legislature because of his support of the Confederacy. Um, and there were a concern about uh, Georgia not passing the 15th Amendment because of his father's support for uh, these sort of Klan-like policies. Uh, his son, who um, would uh, initially run uh, for office uh, in 1868, uh, would not win that election. His father did. Uh, and so his son then uh, would run for his father's seat after his father was removed from office uh, and his um, son would win that office. Uh, but what his son did was use uh, his uh, political um, involvement through the church because he's organizing the CME church at the same time uh, and was able to uh, help elect a whole slate of, of Republican candidates uh, in Georgia. Uh, so his story rewrites a lot of the story about um, Georgia during this time by highlighting his life. Um, he also, uh, so Isaac Anderson would end up winning that election and uh, along with these other Republican candidates. By that time, Georgia is fully under Democratic control, again, aligned with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and um, by that time, there's not a lot that Isaac Anderson can do, but one of the things he does is help lead Blacks out of Georgia um, to relocate to Arkansas uh, and North Mississippi um, because of those much better areas uh, to live. And so uh, eventually um, Isaac Anderson would relocate uh, in final days. Um, he would relocate to Lane, uh, to Jackson, Jackson, Tennessee, uh, because he was one of the um, uh, board of trustee members of Lane College and was a significant supporter of Lane College financially. That's that's helpful to know. What what got you interested in Isaac Anderson? Well, um, I was working on my dissertation and my dissertation focuses on the CME church um, and looks at Mississippi Industrial College um, and uh, in Holly Springs. And uh, but anyway, but focuses on the CME church. And uh, in the process of doing that, I ran into a uh, descendant or found some information from one of the descendants of Isaac Anderson. Um, and uh, in the in the in the brochure that they put together, the family put together, they mentioned that Isaac Anderson had served in the Georgia legislature um, and um, that he had been involved in helping uh, the black community in Georgia. And this was so contrary because most his histories of the CME church say that the CME church was not involved in politics. Um, and so my dissertation, but even larger in this project, demonstrate that you did have um, individuals involved in politics. So when I was going through, oh, CME is involved in politics. So when I began to look through um, documents uh, about um, Isaac Anderson, there was a vague reference to his father, um, William Jackson Anderson, but no reference to his mother. And I kept thinking, okay, so 
who is William Jackson Anderson? Again, this is the, the document the family had put together um, decades after his death. So I started looking and looking and my with my historian hat and got curious about what was going on. And this sort of fell into a rabbit hole um, and trying to find out more about the story, which ended up to be quite remarkable um, of a story. And like I said, it took me a very long time to put it all together. Yeah, that that is an incredible story. Uh, I'm sure he had some cognitive dissonance with his relationship with his father. I mean, I can't imagine how all that even played out um, back then and how that looked. Uh, well, yeah, but you know, the thing that's interesting about that, and I think this is one of the things that, one of the themes about the book is just sort of how complex relationships are. I think a lot of times, you know, we can think, okay, things are very black and white. I mean, totally bad, totally good kind of thing. But one of the things that the family stressed with me in talking to um, Isaac Anderson's great-granddaughter um, and other family members was that his father, even though his father um, was his, you know, his master, um, voted on all these different policies that really, I mean, really uh, were harmful to Isaac Anderson and other members of the black community. Um, the story is that his father, um, before his father's death, he gave Isaac Anderson a tremendous amount of money. Um, and that money allowed for Isaac Anderson to become a businessman in his own right, um, to sort of leave his ministerial uh, work for a period of time, and then relocate to Jackson, Tennessee, where he would become a successful businessman. Um, and so that's one of the things that's really interesting about this is that there is sort of this, you know, complicated story uh, about these these two men um, that you you would think, you know, it's just it's just fraught with lots of complications. Yeah, um, I, I guess at the end, his guilt got a got a hold of him uh, <laughs> to a degree, and he. He thought he would try to uh, try to repair some of the damage he did by leaving his son that that money. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of question marks still remaining. I mean, I don't know. One of the things is that with all of this, there are no diaries. So and and. So recovering Isaac Anderson's life, there are pieces of the story I, you know, put together, um, and with there are no diaries, so you you don't quite know what exactly, you know, is it the, the guilt? Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that um, in his father's obituary, um, there's a clear mention of Isaac Anderson in his in, in his father's obituary, um, and um, not necessarily a clear sort of this is my son. But, you know, within those communities, oftentimes there were sort of open secrets, uh, but he is referenced um, in his father's obituary. Uh, and so, um, yeah, you just wonder what was their relationship like? Um, and again, I'm sure fraught with lots of complications. Yeah, that is very, very interesting. Um, I'm sure we could spend a whole episode on that. What, what, mo what motivated um, Isaac Anderson to start seeing me? Well, you know, I think one of the things that happened, and what's one of the things that's really interesting about the book, um, and sort of some of the things that I have sort of came across is that, you know, oftentimes um, 
you know, when and thinking about Georgia or thinking about sort of the the black um, church, particularly in places like Georgia, people focusing on more on the AME and the AME Zion and sort of think about sort of the black community is monolithic. Like everybody mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, sort of got along and just sort of, you know, went along with uh, to work together. But one of the things that I think part of the reason why Isaac Anderson started or worked to start the CME church is I think for a period of time, there was a hope that he could work with the Southern Methodists um, because again, the CMEs were an offshoot of the Southern Methodist church, which of course split over the issue of slavery. Um, And so what I think happened is he is living during reconstruction. And there are a lot of blacks who have left who've gone to the AME or AME Zion. but then there are some black folks who think, well, maybe we can maintain within the Southern Methodist sphere. And then as reconstruction is taking place, as you have the rise of the apprenticeship system where children, black children are being taken away from their parents, as you see the rise of the convict lease system, as you have all of this political violence going on, I think that is when Isaac Anderson said, okay, this is enough. So for a period of time, he actually was a part of the AME church. Um, and then, um, he begins to see that there's some differences within the AME church, um, in terms of just sort of philosophy and leadership and things like that. Um, and so when the opportunity comes to start the CME church, um, he, along with other black, um, Methodists start the CME church. And the thing about it is, and I think this gets into the re- re- reputation about the CME church, there's always this reputation that the CMEs, especially early on, were like bootlick churches where they just did whatever um, the Southern Methodists did. But they had to walk a really fine line in terms of getting the financial support they needed but then having their own. So they're intentional about saying that they are the colored Methodist Episcopal, not South. They're intentional about saying they are a all black denomination of their own in line of the original Methodist Episcopal church. So they're clear about that. So it's really interesting because they have to walk this negotiating line, which I think, you know, I think a lot of, you know, African-American black people today understand that line of negotiating, especially when you're in, hostile spaces until you get a period of time when you can have um, that autonomy. And eventually the CMEs would have that autonomy and become very vocal, particularly in politics and and other issues as well. Mm -hmm. When you talk about them needing autonomy and walking that fine line, um, was it them still needing financial support from white Methodists and that's why they had to toe that line Um, outside of that? Yeah. And rem- and the thing about the CMEs, and this is to help you understand how, well, and help listeners and viewers as well. The CMEs are primarily rural based. So they are a rural based denomination as opposed to like AME and AME Zion typically are more urban based um, de- um, denominations. And not to say all of them, but that's one of the hallmarks of the CMEs. Um, and so, yeah, they um, went and, and also to AME and AME Zion were very critical of the CMEs um, because one of the things that happens with the CMEs um, is because they end up getting property from the Southern Methodists. So um, that that sort of makes it a little bit more 
where it's complicated, sort of there's tensions with among black Methodists, um, but because of the CMEs are primarily rural based and the African-American community is really, you know, moving forward out of uh, enslavement, you know, economically things are really challenging. Uh, again, this is the time when you have the rise of the convict lease system and sharecropping and things like that. So yeah, that's part of that fine line they had to negotiate in terms of making sure that, um, it's almost like a, that double consciousness where you say one thing in one community, the white community, you say one thing, but within the black community, you're doing something totally different. Um, and so I think that is part of the reason why um, the work and this look at the CMEs and what's going on in this rural based denomination is really important. Um, and I will say this, uh, one, add one other thing on, there's been some work done on um, sort of the rural black community and how you know, that is in the rural black community in the South, especially following the Civil War, um, you know, early 1900s. This is the base of where you're going to see the rise of things like Garveyism um, are going to be based in rural communities. Um, and, I, and I would argue that there is this sort of... Um, this is going on, and this is a part of what the part you see with the CME church, is that you see that there are people who are um, very much interested in Black autonomy and independence. Um, and one, one of the ways you see that outworking is going to be later on when you see the rise of the Garvey movement um, in, rural, um, in the rural South. That's helpful. Can you share a little bit more about the Garvey movement in the, in the rural South? Because I don't think a lot of people know about that and its impact. Yeah, and how that might have affected the formation of CME. Yeah, so you have um, the rise of Garveyism. Of course, Marcus Garvey, um, you know, comes to the United States. By 1919, you have the establishment of the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association. Um, and so one of the things, I think her name is Mary Rawlinson, wrote a book a couple years ago looking at Garveyism um, and looking at it uh, especially in, primarily in the South. And one of the things that um, she argues is that this um, sense of sort of black nationalism um, that's very much a part of the Mark, the Garvey movement, um, you can see it in particularly, you can see it in, in urban areas of the South, but you can also see it definitely in rural parts of the South. Um, and so I think sometimes when there's been such a focus in on sort of more urban aspects of African-American history and sort of thinking about the South in, in that context. Sometimes I think it's sort of an overlooking of the rural um, uh, sort of movement that you have. And so um, Mary Rollinson in her book talks about that, that you have within these rural communities, again, a proliferation of you know, um, UNIA uh, chapters um, in, in the South. So I, I just would, my tied ends with um, Isaac Anderson is just that um, I think that there is within the framework of um, the Black community, I think there's, especially in rural parts of the South, there is this, uh, there's a, a challenging of the system that's going on. Um, there is not sort of acquiescing to what's going on. I think there is a vibrant Black uh, movement to challenge uh, the system. Mm -hmm. You you have uh, two dates in your table of contents, mm -hmm. um, 1868 and 1870, that you, f for for your book, decided that they needed to be chapter titles mm -hmm. because you felt the date was so, the, the time was so distinct. 
what were the significant things that happened in those two time frames that you felt were so significant that the your readers needed to pay attention to? Yeah. So um, 1868 um, was the year that um, Georgia was um, finishing up its constitutional convention. Um, Isaac Anderson served in the constitutional convention, um, which um, the writing of the Georgia constitution had to be approved um, by voters. And so um, anyway, but that was, that had to be, that was done in 1868 the voting of the constitution. You also had the election to public office of um, your, you know, local officials, but also uh, the governor uh, and state offices as well. Um, and so 1868 um, also would be an important year because of the fact that that's when you see really the rise of the Ku Klux Klan uh, as well. So those sort of all sort of coalesce uh, and, and that's going to be the year when Isaac Anderson uh, and his father, William Jackson Anderson, both run for office. Um, his father would want, run to ser serve in the Georgia uh, Senate in 1868, and Isaac Anderson would run to vote, I mean, run to serve in the Georgia um, uh, House of Representatives. So that's why I picked that date as a significant date. Um, in 1870, um, I picked that as a date because of the fact that that's when you have the founding of the CME church. Um, so you have the founding of the CME church, uh, which um, in their founding, and I should have probably said this earlier, one of the things that um, they are founded on is the idea that they would not be political. Uh, and part of the reason why um, you have that, I think is because of the fact that there were white individuals in the white Southern Methodists in the audience. Isaac Anderson's very vocal in that he believes that uh, black people should be able to be political and that should be involved in their churches um, as well, being, you know, being in politics. Um, and so um, four days later, um, he wins uh, a seat in the Georgia legislature in 1870. So that's why I picked that year, um, because it is the year that um, you have the founding of the CME church, but also it's the year that Isaac Anderson is elected to serve in the Georgia legislature. And he is not thrown out um, by the CMEs, uh, nor do the Southern Methodists make a big deal about that, um, because there are, yeah, there's just a, the political concern about um, CME leaders like Isaac Anderson leaving, um, maybe leaving the denomination and maybe going back uh, and joining the AME or AME Zion. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how uh, politics and church politics uh, were at play in that and almost like, uh, like you said, the message, creating two different messages to do two different audiences mm -hmm. to try to accomplish the goal. So to try to pacify the white audience and the black audience at the same time to further uh, the mission, uh, I guess, kind of like we, what we would call modern day code switching on mm -hmm. a different level. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I think you definitely have that going on. And I think that's part of the reason why it's such an, an interesting book, because um, I don't think that code switching that you see this, that there's a part of the CME story. I don't think historians have really tapped into that and really understood that uh, before. I think that they focus in on this one particular CME leader, uh, Lucius Hosley. He, he would be a bishop um, who is very, um, who's very vocal in his support of uh, the Southern Methodists. And um, a lot of things he says are very troubling in terms of the CME's 
um, sort of going along with what the Southern Methodists want them to do and that they're gonna be out of politics. Um, but that is one voice that you hear. And my argument is that within the CMEs, there are a larger voice of people who are challenging what's going on. But historically, people have just sort of focused on what Hosley said uh, and not looked at what um, Isaac Anderson said um, and uh, what he did and other Black um, leaders did uh, in terms of uh, that code switching uh, back and forth. Uh, yeah. So uh, CME and AME, AME mm -hmm. Zion, um, for those who are listening, they may be a little bit confused because there's like African Methodist Episcopal, uh -huh. uh, colored Methodist. Um, what are the dis the fundamental distinctions outside of politics? Okay, yes, yeah, sure. So you have um, the AMEs um, are established uh, in the 1790s. And of course, the the, the founding bishop would be uh, Bishop um, uh, Richard Allen. Um, and, that's, and that's centered in Philadelphia. Uh, then you have um, the AME Zion, and that's centered more in um, New York. Almost the same time that you have the founding of the AME, you have the founding of the AME Zion. But that's centered in New York, New Jersey. Probably one of the most prominent individuals who would be tied to AME Zion would be um, Frederick Douglass um, and Harriet Tubman um, are AME Zion would be a part of the AME Zion uh, church. So they have a direct connection to the early sort of the first um, Methodist Episcopal church sort of early founding, but again, they would be founded in the 1790s is when you see the founding of the AME and AME Zion. And the CMEs are founded much later. Um, they're founded um, in 1870 um, and they're founded uh, by the Southern Methodists because of course, um, right, before right before slavery, you had pretty much all my mainline denominations split over the issue of slavery. Uh, and so um, you're gonna see by the 1850s, you're gonna see the creation of the Methodist Episcopal Church, which is housed in the North and then Methodist Episcopal Church South, which is the Southern um, branch of the denomination. And, and there again, they split. And so the CMEs are started in 1870 as an offshoot of the, of the Southern Methodists. Mm -hmm. Were there any, um, I guess one of the criticisms of AME uh, in the past has mm -hmm. been their high emphasis on education, especially in the pulpit. Um, mm -hmm. Did the CME have a, I don't, I don't want to say a lower bar, but they did, they weren't as restrictive as AME as far as ordination. Yeah, they were pretty strict on ordination. The CMEs were. Um, and one of the things that they do at their founding meeting is that they require that um, they make a requirement that you do need to be able to read. Um, and right. So th that's a part of their uh, stipulation that they put in there. So they're pretty stringent about that. And I think um, a lot of that has to do because of the circle, you know, the spaces that they're in um, and the fact that they that you have um, that the Southern Methodist Church had questioned um, the AME Church. And this is in the 18, about 1867, 18 late 1860s, I guess I should say. Um, the Southern Methodists had questioned the AMEs, um, particularly in Georgia, um, because there were some individuals um, who were being ordained um, who were not educated. 
Um, and so I think because of that, um, the CMEs were really sort of what pretty adamant about making sure that people in the, um, that who are ordained were uh, literate. So yeah, I, they, they definitely emphasize that. That's, that's helpful to know. Is there anything else about Isaac Anderson that you want our, our audience to know um, that you think is very important for them? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, it's a story. Ultimately the book is a micro history um, of just sort of telling um, the black story uh, in the South and one that again, has not been really shared or told. And so I think some of the themes um, that about the book, whether it be reconstruction and black involvement in politics um, and how that coincides with uh, the relationship with the church. I think those are some really big themes. And as someone who lives in Georgia, um, this has been uh, really significant because I think one of the problems about not telling these kind of stories uh, and letting other stories about black uh, leadership being sort of that lost cause story, the idea that black leadership was inept. And I think that really still dominates the minds of a lot of people. Um, even today, mm -hmm. I think a lot of academics don't think that. Um, but I think for a lot of sort of lay people, everyday people, they think that. And that's part of the reason why I wrote this book, um, because of the fact that what you see in the public libraries um, typically kind of continue, a lot of times continue that story. So, um, you know, there's a reason why Isaac Anderson would be the last African-American or one of two last African-Americans. That'd be 1874. He would be the last state senator. The next one to be elected would not be until uh, to serve in the Georgia legislature in the Georgia Senate would not be until the 1960s. Mm. There's a reason why you have um, there have only been, I think, six African-Americans in the entire history of Georgia to ever serve in a statewide office because the stories of people like Isaac Anderson have been and others. I mean, I, I think and he's sort of a, a, a micro history of a broader history of black uh, political involvement in, in Georgia and in the South. I think because those stories haven't been told, there is sort of a expectation that blacks cannot be politically active and be uh, capable political leaders because those old stories of black about black ineptness have been maintained. So I think that would be one of the main things I would say is I think that this is a, a huge corrective on um, the idea about black leadership. And, um, and then also to one of the things I get into talking about the book um, is talking about how the church played a role in um, healing of trauma Talk trauma theory and how it relates to that and how the black church served as a place of healing and just sort of um, and then when that didn't work, how you have black ministers, not only Isaac Anderson, but others who, when the refuge of the church was not enough, gathered their people up and found ways to relocate them into other safe spaces where you had majority black or all black communities so that they could have a place of of uh, of refuge. So I think, I mean, those are two of other things, two of a number of themes of the book that I think would be really relevant to our readers. I mean, that's to your listeners and, and watchers, because I mean, I think that's why black people um, are 
uh, you know, a lot of folks are moving back uh, or trying to find all black communities that that happened a couple of months ago in uh, just south of Atlanta. Um, you had a, a community founded there or, you know, Charles Blow's recent book talking about uh, the book, The Devil You Know, arguing about black people relocating to the south so they can have political power. I think that is a long sort of strand um, that runs through history. Um, that I think Isaac Anderson's story really um, emphasizes. That's helpful, uh, especially when you talk about the church being a place of trauma healing, mm -hmm. um, because now, you know, many millennials, Gen Z may say the church caused them trauma. So <laughs> to see people in that time saying the church was a, a healing space where they, they were able to be a safe space from the traumatic experience they were enduring outside in the world is very interesting and fascinating. And uh, also that pastors, when the church wasn't enough, was able to send people out to places they might think would be uh, healthy for them shows that sometimes we're not thinking about the full history or scope. We might be just thinking about our individual experiences and while those individual experiences may be traumatic, one thing trauma does is often blinds you to the world outside of just your own individual world. And so I think to bring that um, to bring that to the audience, I think is really it's really good and fascinating. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jackson, for all the work you put into this. Uh, Ten years uh, is a long time. And I know that many will be blessed. Um, you said what now? Oh, I just no. I thought I, I, yeah. I just laughed when you said ten years. It's like, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was a great. I mean, it was. It, I, but I love researching, and mm -hmm. um, I got to meet a lot of neat people, and um, took my children to probably places they um, like. We went to went to cemeteries to so walk mm -hmm. through cemeteries to look for people or um, their grave sites, and we I got to research at a, a former prison, um, and I was the only one in there, and it was just. It was kind of a little creepy, but anyway, so, I, so it, it was it was a challenge, but it was well worth it. And I think it's a, just a, such an important story to tell, because um, I think one of the I, I would say one of the things that um, I am, I think I and I think a number of other folks, are, I want to hear I don't want to hear about necessarily what white people did. Um, and how what they did and how they responded to things and how they I want to hear what what did black people do? How did they survive? How did they manage? And and in many cases, thrive um, and negotiate some very hard places. Um, I think the other thing about the book is um, that I talk about is telling stories and the connecting with our past. Um, and so I think when we don't tell these stories, we lose so much. And oftentimes we're so busy and this and that going on that we have a disconnect with our our ancestors. In that way, and so when we can reclaim these stories, I think it helps us to be able to move forward, have perseverance, um, and uh, so again, I think that's I think the, another value of of his story and book. Well, thank you so much. Um, the book drops; it's not out yet. No, it will be, it'll be out December 15th, but it can okay. be pre-ordered. Um, okay. University Press of Mississippi is publishing it. So it will be available and in, in, yeah, in December, December 15th. Awesome. And they can pre-order it on Amazon? Uh, yes. And also they uh, at the University Press of Mississippi as well as it's available. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Do you have any social media handles? Um, primarily right now I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's okay. about it right now that, yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jackson. It has been such a rich conversation. Thank you all for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project. You can catch all our past episodes, Jew3Project.org. Uh, remember, Courageous Conversations is coming up soon. We are sold out of all in-person tickets, but you can definitely register for virtual admission at CourageousConvos.org. Remember, this will not be live streamed. So if you want to view it, you have to get a virtual ticket. Remember, you could get our curriculum here uh, through Eyes of Color take an online course, get merch, and become a monthly partner all at g3project.org. Remember here at the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the G3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.g3project.org. Com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.